to Diaries of the Wild Ones. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you're all planning some really cool adventures for 2021. Thank you to everyone who entered the Tell Us Your Tale competition that Wild Earth Australia put on for us. And congratulations to Michelle McFadden, who won a summer adventure back, and I'll be recording her story soon, and I can't wait. It's absolutely insane. Now, big ups to Wild Earth, because I was in there just before Christmas getting some gear, and this customer came in who was planning a trip to spend a month walking across Tasmania. So he went in to get a new backpack and some advice. And I was just so impressed with the Wild Earth team, with the effort that they went to to get him the right gear. They put different packs on him, got him to walk around with a 15 kilogram weight in it until they found the right fit for his body type. They fine-tuned all the gear for him to, to be the most practical for the adventure he was going on. It was literally that interesting, the advice that the crew was giving him, that I stuck around and listened to the whole thing. So actually highly recommend if you're planning any trip, going into the store or call Wild Earth because their team are all adventurers and they've field tested all the gear. They only sell the best of the best in there. So I'm just so stoked and so proud that I'm aligned with such a company. So if you need anything for your next adventure, go to wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code Diaries of the Wild Ones, all one word, capital letters. And also a huge thank you to Free Brewing Co, organic preservative free beer. The best way to cheers a day after sending it all day. Find them at BWS and Dan Murphy, silver can, big black letters that say free, organic preservative free beer. It's a no brainer. Okay, so this episode is with one of my heroes and mentors, Dr. Jeff Wilson and his incredible son, Katali Wilson, who is an insane rock climber. Now, Jeff has been on here twice before. He has multiple world records and I've done his story on the longest Antarctic traverse, which was just absolutely insane. But he recently just completed another world record across Antarctica. Now, this is a family of adventurers, and this is why this episode is so interesting for me, because it shows a family dynamic. Now, this episode is an amazing conversation about expeditions, and then we go into this story, this insane story of what happened to them when they were in Indonesia. But in true Diaries of the Wild Ones fashion, it's recorded on the road. So this audio is not studio quality. But we just got off a rock face rock climbing and stopped off at a local pub for a beer in a beer garden. So you're going to hear the birds. You're going to hear people in the background. You're going to hear trucks going past. And then the wind kind of picks up. So we actually decided to jump in the car and finish the conversation in the car while we headed home. Now, when you do recording cards, you pick up a slight buzzing that goes through the audio. But it's okay. The story is amazing. It's informative. It's, it's a crazy adventure story. It's with two of my favorite adventurers. And I think you guys are just going to like it. It's just a raw, wild story. Diaries of the Wild Ones fashion. And I just love that about it. So enjoy, guys. No, you don't have to be quiet. Dr. Jeff Wilson. Ah, uh, good. good. It's always funny when you start and everyone looks at you when you start a, yeah, when you start a recording. Jeff. Thank you for this morning. I'm actually kind of shaking right now, <laughs> taking us rock climbing. Where are we, Boona? 
We are looking at the backside of Mount French, looking due west uh, in the little southeast Queensland town of Boona. So just been, we've just been rock climbing. That was actually my first time rock climbing, and it was scarier than I thought. Yeah, we threw you on Iron Mandible, which is a Queensland classic. It's a beautiful sort of medium to intermediate climb uh, that goes from sort of balancey ballerina moves to finger crack to hand crack to full body, like elbow jamming. And it's fully sustained climbing, so you did really, really well to get thrown on that and, and get into it. I think we all did well. It kind of trips me out that the Wilson family, like we're here with your whole family pretty much, or that you guys are just all-round adventurers, like in kind of every little aspect. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's been an amazing thing having that outdoor lifestyle, but really understanding how good it is for families for that activity yeah. level to go through and to find something like climbing where you're, you're actually physically, physically connected. So for Java and I... It took a long time to find her thing. You know, she she wasn't like those kids that are like immediately good at gymnastics or or football or for Java it just suddenly clicked. Rock climbing was her thing, and um, as a dad, connected to your daughter by this umbilical cord of rope, which keeps her alive, keeps me alive, is pretty special. Like I I we're, we're really pumped to do a, a five part series. Yeah. of adventures just showcasing how good the adventurous lifestyle is for families was that your plan as a father because i said it to you earlier when i saw java start climbing i was like i said to you how how crazy is it how you've just like bred capable humans like was yeah. that your plan like as a father not really i mean it was always just to keep them busy and keep them out of trouble like i'd i'd rather them climbing crack than doing crack <laughs> You've been doing crack, Java. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know the the whole thing is uh, similar to my approach. Whenever there was a a boy around sniffing around my girls, I'd keep them so busy that they were just physically exhausted and couldn't couldn't get up to mischief. How would you do that? <laughs> oh, Simon's probably the best example because he was twenty one when he was dating Jade at sixteen and. I knew his history, you know, he was a model, he'd been all around the world and up to no good, so not the sort of bloke you wanted uh, near your, your pure white 16-year-old girl. At the time. At the time. <laughs> and uh, so I just, honestly, we just were glued to the hip for five years. Um, I exhausted him, you know, we did every adventure known to man and now he's married to Jade and is the best expedition partner you could ever wish for. He's he's incredibly tough and, and resilient and never loses his shit in the wilderness. Like, he, he's a phenomenal partner. But it all came from trying to keep him busy so that he oh, could so keep his hands off uh, my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Soon they might even be having kids and you'll be a grandpa. Yeah, then I'll keep the little grand grandkids yeah. busy. But I think the whole, the exciting thing about this next adventure series is just showing people you know life is an adventure and if you let the love of money or stuff get in the way it just grinds you down and you end up suddenly waking up overweight and slow and all your all your juices aren't flowing properly and and you're just ground down by life whereas if you live to adventure then you 
you know, you want to keep fit because your body is the vehicle to adventure. You have to look after it. Um, there is downtime with injury occasionally, but generally you're not getting in- injured as much because your your base fitness level is there. You don't let the love of money get in the way and you have an absolute focus on the planet because there's no point adventuring in a car park or a jungle made of cement. You want the world to be as healthy as it can be and you know, I challenge anyone who hasn't seen David Attenborough's sort of final film to really watch that and let it imbue into their heart because we've got we've really got we've really got one generation to decelerate our destruction of the planet before it's kind of done. Yeah. You know, we've we've killed well over half the biomass on the planet and replaced it with concrete and steel and cars. And I think a love of adventure really makes you stay focused on on the planet you know keeping it healthy and and uh like you know we saw this morning there's nothing better than adventuring with family you know it keeps families together yeah it's actually funny you say that it's, i think it's just awareness it's like just the last few months like i went up to the daintree and back it's the oldest rainforest on the planet and being up there i'd never seen it i'd never experienced it but just experiencing it once i was like wow this has to be protected you know what I mean? It's like literally just getting out of nature and understanding that. And I think that's the hardest thing. Like if people aren't out there, they don't know what is needed to protect. Yeah. I, I, so I can't I think relate if, to it. If you're not getting into the wilderness, you can't, you don't fall in love with it. And I think, you know, adventure doesn't have to be hardcore. It doesn't have to be crossing Antarctica solo. It could be, you know, running up Mount Barney and trying to do it in an X amount of time or... Or doing all of the southeast peaks down here. You know, we're looking out across the scenic rim here. And it is a magic piece of country. Like, you wouldn't think there was so much good rock in southeast Queensland. But because of COVID, we've been squeezed into this corner for the last, you know, best part of a year. And just explored every piece, every crack, every granite, boulder, every, you know, piece of rock here. And it's been a phenomenal uh awakening to what's available on our doorstep i had an email actually like last night from someone in montreal and they said isn't isn't COVID affecting you (laughs) i said actually like yeah we are pretty lucky here how we've dealt with it but i said it hasn't even with the lockdowns it hasn't affected me at all like yeah it's affected overseas travel but Australian travel is just thriving right now, and it's just so much fun. And I think it's like this huge realization of what we have here to people. Oh, absolutely. And I think also, I've been so proud of the Aussie people, and that they're like, it's a bit like when Johnny Howard said, "Hand in your semi-automatic rifles." We're like, well, we're a bit upset, but it makes sense. You know, yeah. let's do it. When <clears throat> when the restrictions are in, rather than run around complaining about masks or the restrictions the Aussies were like yeah yeah it seems like a pretty good idea let's do it and they did it so well that we got this thing under control and then we're back to a relatively normal uh, business life which meant that jobs persisted you know the economy's on slowdown but it's still going whereas across the globe we've seen right it up you know people objecting and then getting into a shitstorm and you're like man I, I love the Aussie attitude I just think they're phenomenal people yeah you know full of full of spirit and spunk but when things hard things have to be done we're good at doing it how was it for you because you're actually you when you're overseas on your on your last world record 
did was COVID hitting when you're in Antarctica? Uh, I think Sarah and the team here, you know, the family doing the logistics, were, were feeling Wuhan was warming up, and they kind of protected me. the The bushfires were going on, so whilst I was at minus fifty to minus eighty, they were, you know, having smoke come through the house, and it looked like we might have to evacuate. Um, so they protected me a lot from the Wuhan stuff and from the fires. But then when I landed in Cape Town, immediately you could feel people were on edge. It was late January. Wuhan was out of control. And then there was talk of the virus uh, getting into Antarctica, which um, if I'd taken the original 90 days to do that journey, I did it in 58. If I'd taken the original 98 days, I probably would have got locked into Antarctica and spent the whole winter there. So I would have been there for a year by now. And then they're not going to open up this season for fear that COVID's going to get into the Antarctic winter bases. So potentially I could be there for two years before I got out. Did you know when you were in Antarctica, right at the end of your, like, once you had hit that polar record, had anyone said anything to you? Or was it a possibility? Or were you just on your way and you didn't find this out until you hit... No, I, I knew, I remember feeling an urgency to get out. And I think at the time I just thought I've been away from home too long. This journey's taken seven years of dedication to get across the line. I'm done now. We've, we've done, ticked off the three big goals and I just want to get home. But I think it was the instinct sort of saying, you need to get off this continent or you're going to be here for a long time. And uh, when we got home, it was kind of the same feeling you get when you're on an Antarctic ice sheet and you get that first forecast that there's a storm coming and then you, you build your tent and then you start hearing the wind screaming, building up and you look to the horizon and it's black and then the snow's coming in sideways and it's just getting more and more intense and then pretty soon you're in that tent fearing for your life. And when we landed in February back in Oz, it kind of felt like that because we had, we had more mortgage you know, 12 businesses under mortgage, 85 staff in the veterinary game and more debt than I've ever had in my life. And here we are, you know, I can't feel my hands and feet. I'm back on the ground feeling like a severe chronic fatigue from the journey itself. And we have to go into survival mode to try and save our business. And when they, when they gave the first round of essential services, vet, vets weren't on it. And we're like, okay, uh, we're screwed, we're going to lose everything. And then the second day, there was some lobbying going on and we were then on the list for the, for the essential services and that, that made all the difference. And then suddenly, Aussies lent into their animals for their mental health and we were part of the recovery program and, and were run off our feet and it's been the making of the company. But that could, you know, just a, a roll of the dice and it yeah. could have gone a different way. And I feel for many people who didn't get the role we did and they've lost everything. How did, if you don't mind me asking, how did your body feel when you got home? We we don't have to, we won't go into the the actual um, expedition, but how did your body feel recovering? Because how old are you now? Uh, just tipped over fifty this year, so I really felt like I had to do this journey while I was a four in front of my age, and I think the urgency. I don't know. It's weird if if we hadn't done it at forty nine. A, I don't think my body would have recovered. But B, you know, COVID's going to shut Antarctica down longer than anywhere else. Mm. 
it, you know, it potentially we could have been done and dusted. What? Because what was the world record that you guys um? Hey, Kit. Oh, Kit. Jeff's son just got in. No, gra- grab a glass if you want, and then join us. We want to. We want to tell the <laughs> story about beer. when you're on the boat. But so, what was the actual world record that you ended up completing? So, I mean, the goal. The, world record? the goal of that journey was to to do the longest solo polar journey ever done. Five, I think. Because you. 4,800 kilometres was the current your, record. Your last one was the longest um, Antarctic traverse. Yeah, it was the fastest Antarctic traverse, traverse at 53 days. Yeah. Uh, from coast to coast, from Nova the Sky Station, through the South Pole and then out through Hercules Inlet. But there's some argument about my starting point on that one. So, you know, for me, it's, it's a personal record. Whether or not it's recognised by Guinness or whatever really doesn't bother me too much, but... This one I knew, you know, being a pure distance record, it'd be hard for anyone to argue. So it was basically just trying to break the 4,800 mark, but I couldn't get permission to get across the guts and over to the Tasmanian coast side of Antarctica. So you had to cross this thing called Domargus, which had never been crossed before. And it was kind of like the big unknown because no one had ever tried. A lot of people with good knowledge of polar travel we're like you're not going to be able to pull sleds up that thing and you won't get wind because that's where the wind comes from it rolls from the highest point of an, of the antarctic plateau to the coast so any thought of kiting up it is ludicrous you're not going to be able to kite and you can't tack upwind uphill so prep yourself for you know 30 days man hauling uphill in deep snow we don't think you'll have the calories or the fitness or the toughness to do it. And uh, so there was a big unknown. And then when I landed in Cape Town, the, the support team were, were amazing, the Russian support. They were the only guys with the guts to, to back me. Uh, but they were very clear saying, listen, there's 1,100 kilometres around Dome Argus where we're not certain we can get an aircraft uh, off the ground. We can get an a- aircraft to you. But the air's too thin and we're, we're worried about getting the aircraft off the ground. We, we're not sure we can take off again. So they're basically saying if you, if you do that route, go through Dome, Dome Argus like you're on your own. Yeah. For 1,100 kilometres. For that midsection. So they're like, no, nah, it, it would just... So was that, a, was that a record in itself to do Dome Argus? Yeah, no human's ever gone. And part of the reason for that is it, it's so far from the coast. So traditionally you would... You would ski in and then ski out and you couldn't get that distance without the use of kite or wind power um so it was 2700 kilometers from the coast so you're 2700 kilometers from any resupply or rescue uh, you know arguably you're the most isolated human on the planet when you're on dome argus and kit was saying that the the closest people to you at one point was the actual satellite above you, above Antarctica? Yeah, the International Space Station. As it goes overhead, you're you know much closer to those humans than you are anyone on terra firma. Oh. So pretty wild setup. Kids here now. He's just come off the wall. 
off Mount French. How was the climb, Katali Wilson? Yeah, it was good. Thanks for having me. Sorry I'm a bit late. No, um, no, that's got, okay. Got um, a bit preoccupied repelling. Well, it's pretty nice. You have, have you grabbed a beer? We've got a little bit, bit of wind going through the mic, but it's actually kind of nice. I'm, I'm really liking doing podcasts out in nature. It's ambience. Yeah, exactly. But we're just, your dad's just touching on just his last world record because tonight is the movie launch, 200 years in Antarctica. So we're all going to a little like gala night at event cinemas. So we're just kind of touching on um, the last world record he did. But I was going to ask you, Jeff, now what world records do you hold? Or what even personal? Because is Greenland still a world record? It's getting longer and longer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I think the Sahara journey would be the only crossing of the Sahara um, north to south or south to north using wind power. The first crossing from Australia to New Guinea using kite power. And then Greenland, obviously Simon and I did the south to north, the fastest crossing there. The the only Australian coast to coast through the South Pole and the fastest crossing there. And then now this last one, the first ascent of Dome Argus solo unsupported and the longest solo in human history and still the longest solo done by an Australian any, anywhere. Um, but the weird thing is, you know, like I, I'm very, very niche, like, um, kite power, traction, sand, ocean, um, snow. There's probably no one in the planet who's covered more distance over sand, ocean, or snow using kites. And how, how does that feel to have your name? Is your is your name like literally written in the in the Guinness World Records? Well, that's a, a job we need to do. You know, it, it, the problem is we don't really do these journeys for the records. So you come home. And you tick off your personal list, but then there is a big job in getting them ratified and into the Guinness Book. But and that's probably more important for the family. You know, I, yeah. I know the kids are like, Dad, you got to do this yeah. to get them ratified. And uh, for me, it's more paperwork, and I'd rather just plan the next adventure. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so. I think it- comes down to motives as well like dad's not going out there with the intention of just bagging as many records as possible there are guys that go out there literally looking at the fine print of like has someone done this or done that but kind of the scale of the expeditions you're doing if that's the motive and if that's the catalyst for why you're there then you're already coming in on the back foot because do you find that's that'd be a quick way to get yourself killed yeah i've seen it seen it before and guys that were there just for the record book and they they fold very quickly when things get really brutal um i had a, a very good friend of mine in in one particular storm and we both faced the same challenges during that storm but my motives for being there were really different to his yeah kind of like greater purpose great just having a greater and i think that's the same in life you know if you're if you're just going through life for the accolades and the ego you're going to fall short when wow it sounds like we're in a wind tunnel doesn't it yeah Um, you're going to fall short when the going gets really tough Um, but if you're there with a pretty pure intention on just showcasing adventure or you know working for a charity that you believe in then you're going to have rocket fuel in that endeavor and ultimately adventure's fairly it's quite a selfish endeavor so yeah it all comes down to having that greater purpose and i think that's why like most people would look at dad and and probably assume that wow this guy all he does is adventure but probably 10 percent of his life is adventure and the other 90 percent is 
it's veterinary work and stuff like that and, and training for and it training and all the build up around it so it's like the actual like flicking the switch and doing the achievement or trying to get um, the exhibition done is just the outcome and there's a big process before that that not a lot of people would see how long did it take your body to recover from that Antar- last Antarctic journey? I don't know that I'm fully recovered yet. Like, it's, we landed late Jan, early Feb. What are we now? So it's like eight, November. nine months? Nine, nine months. months, yeah. It's almost like a childbirth. Um, I, I think I'm just getting out of bed now with the spring and the step, and, and I'm starting to dream again. You know, you're so fatigued. I think the film, the film coming out, and I think, you know, the great thing with Iceman... Uh, 200 years in Antarctica the film is for people who don't really understand the brutality of the environment how significant that journey was from an Australian polar perspective um, and how tough it is on family you know like there's a real sacrifice for these journeys this film really unpacks that well I think it's probably the best film we've done in terms of showing the impact on family and um, there's a cost to this lifestyle you can't Everything you do has a cost, but um, I think the rewards of an adventurous lifestyle are so significant that it's it's worth the cost. When when you were a young kid, and your dad would go for these world records or go on these adventures, these solo yeah. adventures. How was that on you? Like, did you understand like the risks that your dad was taking? Did you yeah. ever understand like your dad might not come home? Well, I'm trying to think back. So, like, first major expedition you did, and. I think a lot of people have to remember dad and he's this is coming from you and I'm paraphrasing but like your 20s and 30s were mostly spent getting the businesses right and just being a vet and kind of slotting into that working hard and he's always been adventurous but like late 30s is when you started doing these long grueling ones so that places me around like 10 to 12 and I think at that age you just think it's wow this is fantastic you probably don't grasp the realities of it and the the actual um, the dangers that are associated but as I got older it was really interesting the goodbyes were definitely more um, more uh, intense and especially on this last one just because I'd been in the logistical team and we knew what was going on around um, the areas he was going into especially the areas where he had no support and at times um, it was hard to contact the team that it wasn't so much of like a goodbye and I'll see you again it was like where you're saying goodbye in the notion that he might not come back so you want that goodbye to be i don't know like memorable and it's not so much like when i was younger you say goodbye and you're you you know your dad's invincible you think your dad's invincible and you know he can come back but as you get older and start to kind of come to grips with mortality and stuff like that and also in the last five years there's been a lot of pro guys die um in the polar realm so it was it was very real especially coming to the season did season. you ever question like your dad's ability as in like not mm. question did you ever no nah. did you have those moments when you're like he might not make this or I like no nah, i don't think so i think i think the people that doubted dad were the ones that know him on a probably not on i know just know him on the surface like if you know dad you know i knew he wasn't going to make decisions um, that would just ultimately end in the whole expedition failing and him not coming home. Like yeah. we, this is something we chatted about as a family. Like at the end of the day, you've got the records, you've got the expedition, but like the expedition is only as successful as when you step off the aircraft. Do you literally, Jeff? Do you go into like 
does your mind frame change when you step off of that aircraft into, into Antarctica? Like, does it... Yeah, I, I kind of describe it as the line, the witch in the wardrobe moment, you know, the, where the kids step through this cupboard and they go from the 1800s kind of London to, boom, they're into this magical winter wonderland. And it, it feels like that. But you, your chance of getting home is so much greater if you're just single-minded on the task and you're not thinking about family all the time. The real focus has to be on on the job at hand, um, and we were. I was really disciplined on the first Antarctic crossing uh, during the first half of the journey, and not thinking about family till I got to the halfway point. This time it was hard because we had such good satellite connection through Iridium and Pivotal uh, that we were FaceTiming each other, and I think that really broke my flow a little bit, and that I could see the family, mm. and mentally it was much harder to stay on task. Yeah. It's like tangible. It's not like the because on the first expedition, it was. It's crazy the difference in technology. Like yeah. Dad hadn't done uh, a notable polar expedition before the first one, so he was still running just a sal- satellite phone, and that's like you get like two minutes max a day. Yeah. So that's like, hi guys, and I might talk to him every two weeks. Whereas this time it was like I could text him. Yeah, <laughs> and have that instant. Con- it's so just on this. It's not relating at all. But like last weekend. I was out and mum wanted to know if she, because I'm staying at mum's place on the Goldie, she wanted to know if she should leave the door unlocked for me or if she needed to come get me. Now, any time when I was younger, she would have just left the door unlocked or just not even thought about it or put something in place or sent Mm. me a or just whatever and I would have figured it out. Mm. But she, like, I didn't reply so she started calling me and calling me and then texting me and I had, like, three missed calls and then, like, five texts like, with this anxiety, like, moment coming from her saying, like, she needed an answer and I was just like, since, like, when do you need that? And I was just like, because now we can have that instant connection. Like, how much her mind changed with that Mm. um, security. Mm. Like, Five, six years, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, she would have just had trust in like, oh no, it'll be fine, kind of thing. It's like yeah, out of yeah. sight, out of mind. Yeah. So I can kind of relate to like how like by seeing them every day and by being able to, it's like that anxiety might pick up, you know? Yeah. And there's, it's great with that being connected and stuff because we were able to, on, as a logistical team, we were able to tell a really cool story and kind of bring people along. But it's definitely a the more people you bring along for the journey, the more you're detracting from the journey. And that's why it's it's nice to do ones like when we did the Alaska trip, we literally didn't talk to anyone for yeah. two weeks or so. And that's really, really nice and grounding. And you, as like, it definitely built our relationship in the fact that so often, like you were saying, like the devices are a crutch. Yeah. Whereas if you're in tune as a team, um, you can't do that. It has to be like very transparent, open and like, honest communication and that's the podcast that i've done with you jeff called gates of the arctic which is you guys going to alaska and whether the grizzly nearly attacks you but that's actually a great place to start because jeff you've lived a life of adventure and when you're when you're younger or when the when the kids are younger you bought the yacht which is in your book What's your book called again? It's just Jeff Wilson. A Wild Life. A Wild Life. So I've still got it in my car, but I remember <laughs> reading this story that, I, I, that I'm so happy that both of you guys are here that we can tell because you bought a yacht and took the whole family sailing. Um, where was that, that trip? Was we that two years? from, it was after I was in Aceh with the tsunami. I was involved up there as a translator from Indonesian to English for a French medical team. And then I kind of had a, had a wig out and we, we put all of our businesses into management and sold whatever we could and bought a sailboat 
Hadn't sailed before. Never sailed before <laughs> and learned how to sail up the East Coast in the worst conditions possible, put their family through hell. But um, Kit was only five, six at the time. Java was eight and Jade was uh, 12. Uh, so Jade remembers it clearly, but the both Java and Kit probably have mainly traumatic memories because of the, the fun times they forget, but the, the things that shape them, uh, they remember. But it was an amazing journey because we covered uh, a huge amount of kilometres. We sailed from the Gold Coast all the way up the East Coast, did a race from Darwin to Kupang, and then did Indonesia twice all the way to the West. And then up through Malaysia, Thailand, turned around and then came back through Indonesia, mm. Papua New Guinea, had pirates chases. Um, what, whoa, 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 wait. What would you mind? <laughs> the pirates back quickly. up, back up. <laughs> back up. No, we had two, two run-ins with pirates. One was in the middle of the night coming across the top of Aceh. This is before the tsunami. It was a real hotbed of pirates there. And uh, a boat came off the coast doing 20, 25 knots in the dark and it popped up on the radar and it, it came out probably 20k and then came in behind us, was about a mile behind us, following us. And we'd, we'd gotten rid of our guns in Cairns. Uh, my oldest sister um, protested and said, I won't, be join- like, I won't be joining you guys at 12 um, if we continue. We had like a, just a gun <coughs> to protect the family and we got rid of them so that was like a big step because most most people traveling through those heavily pirated areas have mm. a gun but we, we did the same and we had ours but it was, it, which is actually on uh, the podcast that i put out the boat robbery but we ended up g- getting a replica yep. gun yep. because we were sitting there and we're like oh, okay our minds might slip a bit we're out at sea totally and Who it knows? just escalates every every situation yeah and a lot of these people are coming from very desperate especially after the tsunami they're coming from very desperate circumstances so it's a bit yeah it would have just inflamed things and but dad that's not to say dad slept most nights on the deck with a spear gun so yeah he'd take- yeah when we're in dodgy areas I'd, I'd sleep on the deck with the spear gun with the rubbers loaded and ready to go uh but this night this thing was following us and, and uh eventually we wake the kids up put them in life jackets said we're going to have contact at some point before dawn and we were trying to radio for help. No, were, were no you one. trying to like outrun them? Did we're trying to outrun them. We had every on? every bit of canvas up. And uh, the thing that saved us was as we started coming around the top of um, uh, Sumatra, this massive swell started to come through, like twenty to thirty feet of sea, and the boat was like skipping across the top. And there's foam in the water, and I'm thinking, mate, you'd be very brave to try and board. A vessel in this and they were obviously thinking the same thing but the we had spotlights out and every time we put a spotlight in their area you'd see them on the radar pull back and then they'd come forward again and it was just a really anxious four or five hours and then the sun started to come up over the horizon and they must have decided it's too dangerous to try and board and they veered off back to the coast and i've never been so happy for rough water in my life but we, we anchored that night inside a volcano right off the tip of uh, Sumatra, having outrun these pirates for the first time. And then it happened again in in Papua New Guinea. We got woken up early in the morning by a fellow called Jonah who had befriended us in the local village. And he said, you've got to go, you've got to go. Tapping on the hull and we woke up and I said to him... Um, have I got time for a cup of tea? And he said, no, I've risked my life to be here. Me and my boy heard him planning to rob you. They're coming. And literally, we 
and we'd broken you'd broken your kind of number one rule which was generally you stay two nights so first night you go in you talk to the chief you go like can we have your permission to stay here um, in return for your protection and most of them were like yep sure um, second night word spreads to outer towns that aren't involved with the chief and then third night is generally when the tax going to occur because the interest is intrigued uh, increased and um, yeah you've just got outsiders coming in from other towns that aren't directly affiliated with the chief that are kind of looking at this yacht out in harbour and just like well that's easy yeah easy picking so we literally got the kids in their life vests and then we're pulling up the anchor and the river started spewing out war canoes with these um these guys pouring through we could grab some more beer yeah that's possible <laughs> yeah, i know it's yeah, another dry throat more beer <laughs> more beer you're sponsored that's by a beer company now aren't you? yeah free brewing co yeah let's plug them right now organic <laughs> yeah, preserving we're drinking, free beer. Yeah. we're drinking free brewing co <laughs> <laughs> this is free lauren paid for it <laughs> thanks lauren. Cheers, lauren yeah yeah so continue so um so yeah uh, the the amazing thing was the sea was wild again and and uh, we escaped out into the open ocean and these war canoes with, I'd say, 30 to 40 angry-looking dudes in came out and were really upset. And I still think of Jonah regularly. I wonder what happened to him, whether he paid with so his how, life. So how far did they... Okay, so so well, so you've pulled anchor. By the time you're pulling anchor, can you see them in the night coming at you? No, this is dawn. So oh, the sun was coming up. Just as the sun was coming up, they're pouring out of the river. It was like ants coming out of this river and, and you, they're they're probably only 300 meters away by the time we started to move if jonah hadn't warned us so was jonah it. still there no he he woke us up said you gotta go and then he paddled into the dark looking terrified and i still reckon they would have known that we were warned and they would have yeah. been on to him but um you know that's yeah amazing. that's huge a miracle I, i've seen like living because i lived six years in indonesia and the locals stick together and it's like I've, I've, I've seen it many times before where like and even heard like that um you know they can't tip him off even if it's your mate he can't tell you yeah. you know what i mean like if he hears someone's gonna do something he can't it's like it's it's so taboo for him to go against their own kind but i remember kit in that village and this this may have saved our life who knows kit was such a generous kid that he took all of his toys out of his yacht little cabin and gave them away to all the kids in the village and who knows you know that kindness that kid showed may have saved our life but you know he kid had nothing anyway do you reckon they would have killed you guys oh Mm, yeah yeah, it's Papua new guinea it was pretty it was brutal up there so they could have just slaughtered and just taken the boat taken everything and they they ended up 30 to 40 people coming out yeah you wouldn't have a hope with machetes yeah machetes no guns thankfully but i mean you put a spear gun through the first guy's chest but then the second guy would be on you like how close did they get within you when you started leaving oh probably 150 200 meters like it was like within good hairy. view yeah you were they yelling when you started oh, like going furious furious, yeah. furious. so it's, and we're you know we've got this little family yeah. on the back of the boat just oblivious it's so it's funny looking back at it now because i'm like five years old i'm just having a fat time and just it's it's funny going on these kind of extreme adventures when you're little and then being told, like, yeah, yeah, we almost died in that harbour. And you're looking at it, like, I remember going to that village and I remember, like, playing with the, playing soccer with all the kids and then giving away all my toys. And then, like, years later you learn that, hey, this is what happened. But 
you're oblivious to that. You just see the beauty in the whole adventure. Yeah. Whereas it, I think it was a pretty... Like it's just it, part of it. Yeah. It's an incredible... It was an incredible adventure, but it was testing, to say the least. Oh, definitely. And it could have gone the other way. But you know what's amazing is it set this foundation for our kids where they just love the outdoors. Katali has this wisdom that I never had, um, which he's... Like, he's a 50-year-old adventure in a 20-year-old's body uh, with extreme... He's like the the V12 version of me. <laughs> and Simon, the same. You know, yeah. we've got these two two boys in the family now who just have incredible wisdom associated with their adventuring, and they're going to take what I've done to the next level, um, which is really exciting. But, it, I mean, for whether they set records or not, that's not important. It's the fact that they love being outdoors, and I know that that will generate good relationships for them, a love for the planet, and a great life. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter that, you know, they don't have to be the first to do anything. Yeah. And I think, as long as they retain a yeah. love for the outdoors. I'd, I'd like to, like, obviously I'm still, I'm 19, I'm still in my kind of formative years, but I'd like to attribute, like, a lot of the, my worldview has been shaped through hardship. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. I think these days people are really shy of testing themselves or failing or um, kind of stepping out of their comfort zone. But it's from that that you start to see growth. And it's yeah. kind of that balance of opposites. You can't have growth without kind of putting yourself in positions where you can fail and where you could regress. Well, I was just saying it to Jeff right now. It's like right now, just the last few months, we're going out to construction. Like I feel mm. stale. Like yep. I just feel stale in life. And I was saying but like my, um, my fitness has slipped. My um, mm. my my diet slipped and I don't, mm. I'm not challenging myself right yep. now because I don't have something to, and I'm missing. The other day I went for, for a run, the first run I've been to in, in, in a while. And I got into that, that zone where you're pushing yourself. Mm. And I just started like, I was like, yep. whoa, okay, there's that, there's that yeah, life. Totally, I started yeah. feeling alive and I was like, all right, you know, like, and I was just saying to you just before, I need a, I need another challenge. I need to put something, yeah. you know, for me to, to motivate myself, you know. But it kind of stems from that, like we all talk about all our adventures and stuff, but like I was saying before, 90% of the time is spent in that training zone and in that working zone. And I think from, with, even if it's just boredom, like, like you were saying, like working from boredom, great ideas happen and, and it kind of. It's a great Gives motivator. You the feel, yeah, 100%. And I think a lot of people um, would look at dad and be like, oh, he just adventures whenever he wants and stuff like that. But like most of your greatest ideas are coming when you're just bored and like not bored, but in a position where you're not adventuring every day and it gives you kind of the hindsight to look at go, okay, what do I want to do next? What do I actually want to be known for and what do I want my legacy to be? And that yeah. doesn't come from always being out there and always pushing it and being an extreme adventurer. That comes from taking a step back and probably having those months where it's just working hard. And I think you, you're going to adventure better if you feel like you've got every, all your ducks in a row, like you've, you've been a good husband, you've been a good dad, so you deserve this time to just solely focus on mm. the adventure. I think we've met a lot of guys in the wilderness, and I think back to... Um, they're running from something. Yeah, they're, they're incredibly good at what they do, but that's all they do, and they have no solid relationship, no mm. base to go home to, yep. no family. They've burnt every relationship they have, and it's very empty. Like, that's that's pointless adventuring. I think if you're showcasing a love for family, integrity, truth, honour, um, a love for the environment through your adventuring, then you're always going to be a stronger adventurer than if you're just 
a selfish human running from something. And I think that's, you know, in this next family adventure series, what we really want to get across is this is the product of two decades of dedicated adventuring, but you're also working hard in the downtime. You know, you're not sitting around waiting for a sponsor to pay for your journey. You're working your ass off to make it happen and making sure that your family's provided for. So I know you touched on it before, but when you're saying like series of adventures, so what are you literally as a, as a group, as a team dynamic, the family are going to start doing some adventures together that you're going to showcase? That's the plan. Yeah, that's the plan. The so Wilson obviously, sending it. You know, Jade, <laughs> keeping up with the Wilsons. Jade, Simon, um, Java, Kit, they're all adventurers in their own right, but you know, they, each adventure will kind of showcase one of their skill sets. Um, and then Sarah... My darling wife will either be chopping into a meal at the end or she'll be dragged up a rope to the top of some tower for a meal, you know. So, But the whole, it's not so much about the adventure. It's about the benefits for family and getting off the devices and into the wilderness. And kind of breaking that stigma of, you see it so much, like people will be like, oh, I've had a kid now, my life's ended. I'm just going to go and regress my mate said that to me last weekend it's just sad it's a sad it's not i don't think it's true and i perhaps it's me just being an optimist but like i really appreciate that mum and dad have yes it's a harder route it's a harder route to load three kids onto a yacht and go sailing it's not going to be as cool as if it was just you and your partner but it's looking back on it now that time and that um that period of them being really intentional and really um just, the wind's chicken up. Yeah, right. no, it's right. Just wanting to instill invent- adventure into all our kids and um, and sacrifice their time, that's what I'm trying to say, um, really pays off and it can be done. And I think to all those people that have young kids and they're feeling that, oh man, my life's over. Yes, there's periods where it's just going to be getting into school and stuff like that. But if you really prioritize a wild life, and that's what it all boils down to, I think it can be done. And I think. Absolutely. Have you had other parents judge you, Jeff? Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of parents... I'll call you reckless. Reckless, or, you know, when we put our kids at great risk, or, you know, how many times have you broken bones with me, Kit? Too many. Too yeah, many. I've it's busted a, yeah. the poor kid up. Like, he <laughs> broke his leg, broke his arm, and this is all trying to keep up with his dad. And, yeah. and you're like, people go, you're yeah. a worst father of the year award. <laughs> but, you know, we have a relationship that's been forged in the wildest places on the planet. And there's no one I'd rather adventure with. Hmm. You know, it's a, it's an incredible friendship, but that that only comes through hard graft. What you know. what happened that day? You nearly died on the boat. Oh, was that when I was five on the? Were you five yeah. years old? Do you remember that? I that so that's one of the most distinct memories I have of the boat. And that's interesting, Dad saying like the more traumatic stuff. Not I wouldn't say traumatic, just very vivid and very shifting because. And we'll get into the story soon. There's this notion of... Should we cover that? Can, do you reckon they'd be better in the car with less... Oh, yeah, we, get, we can pause it and then tell the story in the car. Yeah, is that all right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. this is a bit of a random podcast because now we've just relocated to the car. Yeah. <laughs> After a day <laughs> of rock climbing. Location two. Okay, but where we're up to is when you nearly died on the boat, the traumatic experiences, the experience you remember <laughs> as a five-year-old yes. that yeah. traumatised you. Dad of bad, the year yeah, award. Bad dad. Um... Yeah, so I would have been five. And as we were saying before, I was five years old, five to six on the boat, so I don't have that many good, like, not vivid memories uh, as a kid. 
on the boat, but this one really, really stuck with me. And I, I, I'd put it down to the traumatic nature, but also that it's kind of breaking that weird notion of when you're five years old and you look at your your mum and your dad and you just kind of think they're invincible. And it, it really showed that, wow, okay. <laughs> your parents <laughs> that, are humans. Yeah, yeah. They can get hurt. And that living this adventurous life comes with a cost. Like, it's the balance of opposites. It's like you want to live a life that's different and outside the box, but that comes with added risk and all these other factors that you've got to deal with as a parent and also as a child. So... Um, yeah, to start it off, um, and Dad, let me know if I'm straying from what <laughs> the actual story is, because it's uh-huh. funny whenever we tell these, there's always um, things I remember and things Dad re- remembers. But we were in a bay called Scar Bay, and in Sambawa. Yeah, oh, Scar, 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 Scar Reef. Scar Reef. That's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Um, and I, I actually that's went, where I live, man, in West Sambawa. I lived over the hill. <laughs> li- yeah, near, Su- near Super Suck. Yeah, near Super yeah. Suck. I, I lived in. Yeah, yeah. I actually went back there when I was 17 on my gap year, and it was super weird. Um, because I, I hadn't been back there since um, I was little. Um, so we're there, and um, Dad, you're probably better to take over the story. You're a much yeah, better well, storyteller. It's, it's an amazing uh, break in that the, the swell kind of wraps into the bay, and when we dropped anchor, there was no swell. So you're kind of nestled into, like, uh, a gap between two reefs, and then there's Scar Reef on your left as you're looking out, and on your right, Little Bingham. And we decided to go for a surf at Little Bingen. And um, Little Bingen was probably breaking two foot. Two, two oh, foot. that's the one in the middle. And then you got a right at, way down the other side of the yeah. bay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you got Scar Reef. And then in the middle, you got Little and Bingen. Then, yeah. And then, yeah, it's a, it's a big bay. It's a big and, bay. And there's a, there's a little lull in the middle. So you can kind of anchor. It's really calm. The boat's barely moving. The bay's small. There's probably like two foot of swell on Little Bingen. And the kids are like, yeah, pumped to go for a surf. They're all on foamies. So I get in the Zodiac and uh, they're all hanging on. Kids straddling the front of the Zodiac. And then the two girls are on either side on their boards is just it, hanging on. Is it just one of those little, little tenders yeah. Zodiacs? Like Tiny. a little blow it up, blow it up. Tiny. I think it had like a 30 yeah. or 40 on the back or no? No, it probably wasn't even that. It was probably like a 10 or a 12 horse. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was probably three metres long, the Zodiac. So we're putting out, and then uh, something really weird happens just as we're coming around the front of the break. All the local Indos who are surfing the break start yelling, and, and they're yelling a warning. And we thought initially uh, they were upset because the kids were not in the boat. They were getting dragged along the side, and Kip was on the front with a board under his arm and, uh, you know, looking like the full yachty, grotty kid with, with blonde dreadies and and uh, hadn't washed probably for a month. <laughs> really hyping me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He looked like the full skeg yeah, yeah. kid. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we look out to sea and there's this random freak wave, probably six to eight feet. Uh, it's shut the whole bay down. And my immediate thought is the yacht is going to end up on the reef. Like with Sarah's by herself, there's no one there to help her and this wave's going to take her out. But then I realised more pressing was we had the boat side onto the swell and I, I tried to get the girls to let go so I could turn the boat onto the foam and stop it getting flipped but they were terrified and just refused to let go and anyway so, so you're watching this wave like break and come towards yeah. you and you're like you're close to that reef the shelly part of the reef where the actual mm. wave is so this rogue wave has broken way out there and it's coming towards yeah. you yeah and so you, 
So okay, so the, the, has it gone past your ma- the the big yacht, like the mothership at this stage? I remember nah. we noticed it fairly late because we we were kind of just like, why are they yelling at us and looking? And then by the time we re- like we realized what was going on, it was kind of like it was just too late. And obviously, Dad's caught in a hard position because he's like, one, he wants to get out of there to try and save the tender, but the other one is like he's got his two two young girls on the side and he doesn't want them just to let go because it's like the size of a wave onto a very sharp reef like I've surfed very scar, sharp scar, reef. scar reef is brutal like you do not want to hit it that's um, why it's called scar reef yeah <laughs> so, I think we've all, we've all got a couple, couple scars from scar reef but um so it's yeah it's a and then yeah I think it hit his broadside didn't it dad yeah it hit his broadside and then the stupid thing was I should have just turned the motor off and, and then copped it and we could have probably pieced ourselves back together pretty quickly but I, I didn't know whether there was a set behind it so I was trying to get the boat at full throttle to turn the nose into the swell and hope that we could ride over it but Jade was on the right hand side and being the bigger child it was impossible to get the boat to turn its nose and it hit its broadside we got kind of flipped and as I got thrown out I must have jammed the motor on full throttle <gasps> on, a, on like a as far to the right as it could go so when the wave passed the girls were washed across the reef so and they were cut up and banged up and they were okay so they, they got knocked off the boat like when the wave hit the mm. boat so you and Katali are in the actual boat but the girls are hanging off the side yep. yeah and they, and they, they got just... washed across the reef and then I you know, the, got thrown around by the wave and I popped up and I'm like okay child one child two where the hell is child three and and I can't see Kit anywhere and I think oh he's drowned or or what the hell and then I see these little hands on the front rope of the Zodiac and he's under the Zodiac he's lost his board and the motor is full throttle this thing's doing 20 knots in donut circles I would have weighed 35 kilos at the time or something so it's just it's ragdolling me and I remember when the wave hit holding on do you know on the little tenders how you just got like the, the little, little gu- guide ropes yeah just holding onto that and not really grasping that hey if i just ditch it i'd probably just get carried by the wave so when we're coming out of the wave the tender is just yeah ragdolling me and i'm kind of like on the bow kind of getting sucked under the front so when the, the wave hit the actual tender did it flip you out but you're holding onto the yep. ropes like it yep. threw you out but yep. you're, now you're holding on yeah and you're like under the bow yeah of the rope and the the tender's yeah. on full throttle because yeah, yeah. Jeff accidentally yeah. so you're just getting do you remember this moment of like just holding on it's, it's so funny because I, I remember I probably it's probably one of those things where it's like the residual like people telling stories and stuff so I've pieced it together in my mind I don't specifically remember like the full ragdoll I remember what we're coming to which is like just the events that came after that so I don't remember the initial impact of the wave but I do remember just being like kind of really helpless and feeling I had my leggy on and this is something I remember I had my leggy on and the foamy because we were about to go surfing and obviously that's just been like chewed up by the wave and I can just remember my leggy just kind of like feeling really really limp on my leg and just trying to hold on and I don't know just it it all happened so fast so it's like for you as a dad you're like this is my most precious asset we've got two beautiful girls and then the boy who's a golden haired boy now he's under the the zodiac uh within millimeters of just getting vitamized by the the prop of this outraged motor and so i start swimming in to try and get into the circle that the 
the boat's doing, it's doing donuts in the ocean and the first pass I come in and it's coming for me and I, I kick as hard as I can and try and grab the front of the bow and I feel the buoyancy of the, the Zodiac hit me in the chest and it compressed, I felt a little kit sort of underneath between me and the Zodiac and then I got thrown clear and the boat went over the top and the skeg hit me on the left hand side of the face and chewed a whole big chunk of muscle. What do you mean by the skeg? Do you mean the prop? The prop. The spinning and the, prop, the motor. Yeah, the motor and the, you know, the on a Zodiac, on a outboard, it's got that, that kind of fin sticking yeah, below the motor. Like the leading edge. The leading yeah. edge, it just hit me so hard in the face. So what you've, so after this wave, you're still at the back of like this reef kind of thing, mm. like the surfers are in there, yeah. and you're at the back, well, and this it's just swimming out the, in open water, yeah, just the, going in circles. The bay's just gone back to that kind of like just flat, so it's yeah. just it's just gaining momentum and just kind of doing these circles because it's and like they wouldn't have been big circles; they probably would have been like because yeah, because the, the engine must have been to the side yeah. or whatever, so it's spinning in circles. But, so you've just swum over and you're waiting for it to come, and you're yeah. what, Jeff? Are you just like just grab onto it? Just yeah, I just thought, I mean, we were so fortunate that the motor was on hard lock. If it was straight or on an angle, it just would have veered out of reach. But it was doing like 10 metre wide uh, circles. Yeah. And yeah. What would have happened if you let go, kid? I just would have been minced. Like, it um, would have gone under the yeah. actual prop, the actual motor. That the yeah. S- yeah, it was kind of, it's really bad because like where I was sitting on, I was sitting up at the bow, obviously facing back to dad when before the wave hit. So now I'm holding on. I've been rotated out of the boat. I'm literally under, and I can just remember that, like, the as it's kind of skimming around the back, like the water hitting my back. So yeah, I'm right under the bow, and yeah, there's not really. Do you any, remember screaming? Uh, I, don't, I don't. I don't know. I don't even. But I, think I, I remember looking at him and going, "He's only getting a breath when the bow yeah. bounces upwards." Bounces up, so. Yeah. He's pretty much under the bloody bow, but the benefit of that was that it slowed the boat down enough that I could get in within its grasp. And, and so when it hit me the first time, I could see the whole world kind of went black and it went down to the size of a Coke can and I could see the ocean floor through this Coke can. Everything else was black and I'm... So pretty much nearly knocked you out. Yeah, but I, I was aware if I, if, I get, if I lose consciousness here, I die and he dies. So I remember fighting that consciousness going come back come back come back and then slowly the coke can you know became the size of a mango then you know like a barrel and then suddenly vision came back and i came up and the boat by now is probably 50 60 meters away but it's starting to make its way back Mm. and i swim in again to get in within its orbit and I, i i went okay last time i didn't get high enough i'll get really high and i do this massive kick and it hits me in the guts and then spins me in the air and I land and then the boat goes over the over my back and cuts the back of my head. <gasps> I get three deep gouges in the back of my head. So now the boats run you over. You've tried yeah. again to grab on to this to this this <laughs> what, yeah, just like rogue just boat. Rogue boat, yeah. Yeah. And so it's run you over again, so the prop on full lock again has gone over your actual body and just cut you up. I just Holy opened the back shit. of my head up mm. and then the skegs hit me boom on the back of the head and, and I'm like, man, that's the hardest hit I think I've ever had and stayed conscious. Mm. Uh, but it didn't kind of go black this time. Mm. And uh, I came up and I'm thinking, this kid is showing such 
tenacity and toughness. He's still there, and but he can't last. If yeah. I miss it, if I miss it this time, we're both done in. And uh, anyway, I remember this kind of primal roar, like like a lion. Say you, yeah. a lion sees another lion coming in to kill its kid, and it was like this. F no, this is not going to happen on my watch. Kind of raw, yeah. And uh, I, I just yelled, and there's blood in the water. I can't see out of my left eye. There's blood pissing out the back of my head, and I am absolutely enraged and going, "This freaking boat is going to kill my boy if I don't get a hold of it this time." Yeah. So I swim again, and it's making its way away into deeper water. So I'm aware that. You know, at any point the motor could straighten up, and then the boat's gone, and he's gone, and mm. and likely to drown or, or get cut to pieces. So it comes around a third time, and I'm I roar, and I kind of pitch my my height halfway between the first and the second jump, and hit it perfectly, and manage to get onto the rope, and I mm. feel this little boy wriggle between me, and then suddenly I'm him, I'm under the boat, getting slammed, and realizing how brutal what he is he's maintained and he probably was only under there for less than five minutes but that's i I realized how brutal the pounding he was getting and i I remember that that's the bit i really remember quite distinctly um is the just feeling so helpless and i've i noticed dad trying to get on board and this him getting more and more desperate and more and frantic and then hearing and feeling the boat like him jumping and then feeling the tender snag on something that's obviously striking his face and yeah. and the propeller kind of like gouging into him and stuff so then on this third attempt just to feel as he comes up feel him right next to me that allowed me to get kind of my left foot up on his shoulder and i remember just like stepping up jumping in the boat and grabbing the uh kill cord which is what we should have had on our wrist and we wore it every time after that and the boat uh, just stopped and i turned around and dad pops over the top and i'm like i did it dad I did it. We're good. We're good. And his face is obviously covered in water. And then as soon as I turn around and see him, there's just this arterial blood just coming out of his face and spurting all over the boat. And that oh, was so like... So you've hit an artery too. Yeah, yeah. Just just a lot of blood coming out. And that was like getting all over the boat and everything. And that was like super vivid for me because like I was saying, you always see your dad as invincible and nothing can touch him. And it was probably eye-opening for myself but also dad like i don't think like dad has had hardship as he was a kid but that was probably the first uh one of the first major events where it's actually been like um like actual trauma in the sense that like getting cut on your face by a propeller and stuff like that and struck numerous times and almost losing a kid so i think looking back on it now you can say wow like what a crazy experience but in the moment it's yeah it's quite traumatic and that kind of what happens after that obviously obviously we're in a third world country it's really really hard to um get proper medical treatment especially for something as um traumatic as that so yeah we actually had to end up going in and go back to the boat and we picked up the girls and they'd had they'd luckily the locals had um brought them over to the boat but yeah it's it's crazy what what did when you got back to the boat what did your wife say like did she could she see it from a distance being on the boat could she well, see the whole thing going we've down? We've actually got... It's funny because we lost some hard drives from this journey and only recently we've, we've got hold of the hard drives. And when you play the vision, it's pretty traumatic because yeah. you can hear... We actually have a video of mm-hmm. this. Yeah, we got video. Yeah, we you probably can... link it in the show notes if you want. <laughs> uh, the video is, is me it, on the hectic. boat 
my face has opened up there's blood everywhere you can hear java most particularly yeah. really traumatized in the background like she's screaming sarah's screaming jade's holding the camera just like you can hear her crying in the background yeah i've asked jade to film because at the time we were doing like an adventure film and i'm thinking man we survived this this is going to be the the drama point for the film that we never really made because i think we we realized how bloody traumatic this was for our kids and um but you know it was it could have gone very very differently and uh but if you've you've struck an artery okay so yeah but kit's gotten in he's climbed up over over you luckily luckily you had the smarts to do that other than just hold on with your dad next to you but you've you've done that but now like you've what artery have you cut i don't like now you've got severe injuries like yeah i mean I, i had a massive facial uh cut that probably had 60 stitches or something in it um but you know once we got pressure on it the arterial bleed kind of settled down and and then the main concern was the amount of swelling on the back of the head from the big skeg hit Uh, you know did i have internal bleeding uh, intracranial bleeding and um i was pretty savvy you know in that i knew that okay I, i don't have loss of vision now and i don't think there's any brain damage but it, it looked like you just come out of a round of boxing. It's yeah. like his eyes completely like so you, swollen, and yeah, that that footage is quite yeah. It's definitely it's hectic because you can just hear the whole family like just pleading, just not wanting to lose their dad, and just coming out of this like what was meant to be a fun day surfing, and now it's like dad has to go away for how many days were you in the hospital, dad? Just oh, a day, wasn't know, it? it was amazing. We we were really fortunate in that there was a gold mine nearby where they had a lot of traumatic injuries because obviously occupational health and safety <laughs> is not a big plus up there. Yeah. But there was a Balinese guy who had really good hand-eye coordination and he did a brilliant job getting me back together. Yeah. Um, but what was weird was the boat that ran me to shore. Uh, there was they used our zodiac and it had a huge amount of blood in the bottom we had clots you know floating around in there and i the two indo guys that that very kindly got java and and jade back to the boat took me into shore and then they came back to tell sarah what was going on probably two hours later but you know sarah sent the kids down below because she wasn't sure whether they were coming back to report that i hadn't made it like, did, were the injuries that severe like yeah. looking at it that you thought like that you might not actually did, what about you Jeff did you think yourself that you might not come through this or did you have the mental clarity or strength to know like that no I was pretty pretty uh, sure that I hadn't had like I knew I'd never been hit that hard and stayed conscious but I was pretty sure I didn't have a brain bleed but when Sarah saw the two guys coming back to the boat with uh, no one with them she was like my goodness what the hell has happened mm. and in the meantime the the wave that hit us was like the first pulse of a new swell and we were we were moored very close to the front of Little Bingen and uh, when they came back the boat was already getting two to three foot of swell under her and Sarah's like if Jeff doesn't get here soon the boat's going to pull anchor and we're going to be on the reef anyway Mm. Um, he needs to get here so when they came in and said listen he's fine he's getting stitched up he'll be with you in a couple of hours she's thinking man I don't know that we've got a couple of hours we need to pull this anchor and move the boat 
Anyway. Was she capable of doing that herself or did she need... Fairly. But the problem was that what we didn't realise, and we only realised this when Dad got back, and this is skipping ahead a little bit, the anchor had wrapped around a bommie, so literally, what, like 18 hours off, if that, like half a day after having this traumatic injury and having to get stitched up and fixed, Dad had to dive like 15 metres, and... And dad's, With that pressure? Yeah, and Dad struggles to equalise at the best of times because um, he had a cleft palate when he was younger. So it's just like, oh, it was horrendous. And I remember being five and being like, I'll do it. And it's just like, it's too, probably too big of a job for you. Um, so, yeah, that just escalated to another degree, um, made things even worse. Yeah, but, I, you know, this is this whole thing, this whole experience. I think a normal family would have gone, that was so traumatic. Let's pull the pin. I don't think we'll ever adventure again. Yeah. And we, we had to kind of take a breath and go, wow, we just dodged a bullet. You know, we could have lost both our girls. Kit could have died. Dad could have died. Sarah could have been stuck with a yacht with no ability to move, with an oncoming swell. Um, who puts their family through this sort of trauma? But then fast forward uh, 15 years and we've got these three incredibly resilient kids who can pretty much handle whatever life throws at them they don't overthink stuff they're incredibly patient they um, just have all of the qualities that I respect in any human and uh, you know it's come out of the crucible of hardship and adventure and I I just really want to get that message across to families don't wrap your kids up in cotton wool it doesn't make good humans and they don't they don't deal with life and adventure doesn't have to be like a traumatic experience like the one we're detailing like adventure can be an atmosphere of supporting each other and whether your adventure is going out and climbing or spending the day at home working on a project that you really love adventure isn't um you don't have to be a hard man that's doing i don't know serratore and stuff like that it's literally just stepping out of your comfort zone and pursuing something that is abnormal but means a lot to you Mm. like it doesn't have to be obviously we're detailing a pretty (laughs) traumatic experience but it's more of just like this is an example of how hardship um something that definitely in western culture a lot of people are really scared of confronting um can be very beneficial in um character development yeah well nothing's ever going to go right we're talking about the art of running downhill on another podcast now when you Mm. like you've got to adapt to everything that life throws at you you know what I mean but it's like breeding those capable humans that are able to adapt to that yeah like everything adventure that is adventure adventure never goes like I've been on trips and you're out and stuff goes terribly wrong yeah and people start freaking out the best thing that I always do to pick people up is like this is the adventure yeah right here like it's like if it was easy you just went A to B yeah then like how what fun is in that yeah and it's like that's the thing we all have the plan until the plan goes wrong so it's like I love that Tyson quote is everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face yeah and that's (laughs) kind of summarizing what's happened here we've had this plan we're going to go surfing for the day we're going to do something with the family and something's gone horribly wrong but instead of letting that dictate the rest of the 15 years afterwards of being like well we tried adventuring and that didn't go well so now we're just going to live this life of um fear we went okay what did we do wrong and uh, hindsight's really important with these things and not going oh well that was just a freak accident but going how can we live a safer life now maybe we uh, like maybe we should wear the safety on our wrist like if dad had the safety on the wrist and we 
we had done that, that probably wouldn't have happened. But you need to go through these experiences, whether they're traumatic or whether you're just learning things. And this is in any facet of life, whether it's your work, whether it's um, something you love or your relationship, you need to um, have those experiences where things go wrong. And that's where you ultimately learn more about yourself and more about the way you can approach an environment. Wow. How do you approach fear, Jeff? Well, this is something I'm learning because I haven't had a lot of probably uh, fears in my life. I don't tend to overthink stuff. He's pretty wise, eh? But (laughs) Talia always uh, wants me to have more fear and be be more safety conscious. Not fear, just understand that things can go wrong. Are you the well? I think you guys are a good team because, like, yeah, Katali, you're, you're so well calculated, yet you're so out of your comfort zone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you're out, you're out doing it. You're out going for yeah. it. I would you say you learn from your dad's mistakes in a way? Not, yeah. I'd I'd say dad has instilled a very good. We have different fears. Like, dad is very much. Um, he's super optimistic when he's in an environment, and it, he'll assess the risk but he knows he's probably he's definitely got more years under his belt he knows what um what he deems dangerous um and it's funny in the last uh, like two or three years as i started to climb more and more and start doing more committing routes that's shifted so when i was a kid i was always the one like dad we shouldn't be doing this and dad's like no i'll be fine it's it's all good like uh, just crazy adventures that he's dragged me on which i which i ultimately ended up loving but as a kid everyone always joked that i was the one kind of holding holding dad in check and stuff like that um so it's, it's been interesting the last few years dad has a bit of a fear of heights and it's probably the only fear i know that oh, spiders that and spiders like spiders. yeah that and spiders that's <laughs> actually like that's actually like i've seen him like properly scared and it, in the last few years it's probably the only time i've seen dad scared is when we're like <laughs> he's run out or he's like high up on a big wall and I, i'm just i i can relate to that because i've gone through that experience and obviously fear like I think you can like work on fear, um, but like you were saying, it's all about how you approach it, and it's it's one of those things. Like some people are just like, yeah, you just got to get over it, but it's a process. You can't just be have these fears, and most fears are fairly rational. Um, whether it's the fear of not being success, successful or more tangible stuff of like I'm afraid of heights, most of them you can work on. Um, but yeah, I definitely think. Me and Dad probably have a similar approach. We just have different fears. Um, and Dad's probably definitely a bit more laxed with safety. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I, you know, the weird thing is um, fit heights have never been something I've enjoyed. If I'm on a balcony, I feel like throwing myself off it. <laughs> um, you know, so climbing wasn't something that I ever thought I'd be able to, to do. But when Kit got basically Kit got the whole family into climbing, um, it's been an amazing thing for the family because it, it's kind of distilled all of our adventuring into one activity that we can do uh, as a family and do regularly rather than having to wait for an expedition to go you know, together or, or go sailing or whatever it is. Um, but it's forced me to face the fact that um, you know, as an explorer, as an adventurer, you, you're kind of thought of being the big alpha male the big tough guy that has no fear and i get on a climb the kits made look really easy and i make it look really hard and i'm sweating and swearing and (laughs) you know crapping myself and it's been really humbling to realize that everybody has their arena and Mm. kit's head game is way stronger than mine on on the vertical wall and his fear of falling 
is minimal. I, I hate falling. I hate that sensation of being out of control. But a large part of it is I've lived this long in harsh environments by not relying on gear completely. Yeah. And there's no arena I've ever I've ever been in where you're relying on gear more thoroughly than vertical climbing. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that as well. But yeah, on the topic of fear, like like Dad was saying, he's he feels so comfortable in an Antarctic uh, blizzard, whereas I would be petrified. So it's kind of like we're both collaborating on what fears we what fears we have and helping each other through those. And I was talking to Dad today. I think a huge one for Dad is he hasn't. He's very real. He's like, he's quite talented at these things and these really hard um, environments he's going into. Um, like, if you look at his track record, he's only had two or three expeditions that have really failed. So he's quite successful in that. So coming to climbing where it's 99% failure was definitely like confronting for you. And I was chatting to you on the way in, um, just on these climbs you're trying to not let that get you down. Instead, embrace that and like oh, fear is such a big topic and we can go on, go on about it all day but there's so many facets to it and I find that really interesting and I don't think people should shy away from fear because if you're fearing you're growing and if you're fearing you're in a new realm like if you're yeah. if you're staying in the same paddock that you've always been in you're not going to fear but if you're feeling fear and there's the possibility of failure then like I applaud you and I think you're you're in your zone wow Mate, this well, this is from a nineteen-year-old. Like <laughs> but this no, is the I'm product. Probably, I'm, I'm rambling. Oh, no, 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 no it, it's <laughs> it's wisdom beyond your years, no, kid. No. Like I'm, but you don't get this sort of uh, clarity, Aaron, without exposure. Like yeah. you, you will not get a, a human being getting an understanding of fear or stretch or the benefit of dreaming uh, unless you expose them. And you know, for those fathers along the way who've looked at me and and probably judged me for how hard I pushed my kids or you know thought oh that poor boy he's trying to keep up with that crazy ADD dad you know you look now at the product of the adventurous lifestyle producing a, a human being who is just very comfortable in their own skin they understand fear and stretch and purpose and dreaming and faith um, it's a phenomenal um, product from a lifestyle of adventure and, and I'm really proud of these three kids so you know we need to talk to the, the girls and get the female perspective but uh, we've just come off a climb called Iron Mandible that Java just made look like a she walk in the park it. she yeah. smashed it you know, it's yeah. all crack and finger and um, it's a phenomenal climb we're so lucky to have it in our back la- yard but once again, you know, this is a girl that struggled to find her her thing, you know. She wasn't really into team sport, didn't really like the ocean largely because of this incident that we just mm-hmm. talked about. Um, and then suddenly Kit got into a rock and she's found her mm-hmm. her thing, you know. She's phenomenal at it and, it and it's just calmed a lot of the angst and given her an understanding of fear and purpose and drive. As a as a father and mentor, how would you approach approach it, Jeff? If if Kit came to you, or one of your kids came to you and said, "Hey, like I I want to go for a polar record," or like, "Hey, I want to climb Everest or something," like how would you approach that conversation? I think the the biggest fear for me and for Sarah was that we would have kids that felt like they had to outdo me or match me, and it's never, I think it's never been like 
No, it's yeah. never been like that. And I think what's great is that they have their own niche. So their, their niche is not going to cross with mine. Um, yeah. The core of it is that as long as they love the outdoors and value the planet and, and you know, value people, treat people well, then uh, I'm absolutely proud of who they are. And if they want to stretch in any arena, whether it was urban or, or bush, I'd, I'd support it. So, so if Kit came and said something like, take I want to climb Everest, like, <laughs> don't get any ideas because, you know, like one out of six people die just, just yeah, summiting yeah, or yeah. something. Like, how would you a- approach that as a, as a father knowing that your son wants to do something that, Let's go. I'm that a, is? I'm coming to you asking, I'm going to do K2, not Everest. We'll do K2. Yeah, I think K two. Like the thing with Everest is a bit of a shit show, really. Yeah. Like it, <laughs> yeah, it's like a highway of rubbish the whole way up and down. Yeah. Um, you're dying because other people are making mistakes. Beautiful, and beautiful mountain, but yeah, not really on our cards. I don't think. Uh, I think if you if you die because of a mistake you made in the wilderness, so then that's that's the game. You know, you understand that. You understand the risk, but. What I think is grossly unfair with the way they've commercialised the climbing of Everest is you can die because somebody else made a mistake and that's grossly unfair and that's not... How's that? Is that because it's a team? Or like no, just because the, the way the fixed ropes work, you're stuck on a one static line that all the teams share costs for. In an environment that the human body isn't supposed to live in. Yeah. You know, so, above 8,000 metres, yeah. you make bad, bad decisions totally. generally. Yeah. and. Uh, but I think if you're finding a mountain that's less climbed, maybe more technical, it's going to thin out. Uh, as soon as you get technical, you're going to thin out 99% of the crowd. And Katali's always going to climb something technical because of his prowess in that area. Yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't worry. Like I, I think Kit has seen logistics done well. He's done risk. He's done risk management from the age of five. Um, whatever he decided to do i'd be pretty comfortable that he'd manage it well yeah and i think drawing back to the if i was to approach dad on the on the back of adventure um like mum and dad have never been like you guys are going to live an adventurous life it's more of been like it's been something that's placed on our on our hearts like if you're always looking at the people that you respect your mum and your dad and your mentors and they're living an adventurous life and you're seeing the fruits from that it's going to be magnetic and it's going to pull you into that. So I don't think there was ever a point where it's like, I'm going to live an adventurous life, but I can probably speak for myself and Java and Jay that we just have something on our heart to not conform. And that, that yeah. is a, it's a, it's a definitely a burden like at 19 to not be doing the standard thing of just this, <laughs> the standard thing. Like I'm doing something different and that's hard. Like, and something well, it takes work. Yeah, it takes work and dedication. commitment and sacrifice at the end of the day. It's funny, we were talking the other day, we were having a conversation about um, how valuable support is, especially in the right way, and like and how detrimental it can be like shutting someone down. As in like say for an adventure or just anything in life, you know, someone comes and like says, you know, say, oh, hey, I want to make it to A to B and someone's, yeah. well, you, no, you can't do that because there's, yeah. a, there's a crocodile at turn three. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the, the importance totally. of support as in like, oh, okay, if you do that... Hmm. Be here careful of the crocodile at turn three. Here are the steps. Yeah, and so it's like you know, offering support yeah. and guidance yeah. rather than just saying no, you can't do that. Totally. And like the whole difference it is on the person's mind. And like, yeah. and how would you be, Jeff? Like, if you went into an adventurer, I mean, if you go into an expedition, but say the say the world record across um, Antarctica, 
do you have to be careful about the people that you have around you and what they say to you? Because it's like, if someone comes and just like, no, you can't do that, blah, blah. Or what's the difference between someone coming to you and say, hey, yeah, when you do this, be real careful because of this, this and this. Yeah. Like that would be a huge difference. Massive. Oh, I think you've got to, you've got to be aware of the fact in our culture today, if, you're, if you don't want to get criticised, then don't stick your head up out of the trench. You know, if you don't want to get shot at or tall poppy syndrome. Uh, But the reality is if you're going to stretch and do anything that's not been done before or is unusual or or is deemed unsafe or high risk, you will cop criticism. So you kind of need to develop a bit of a rhino hide and probably don't read the press too much before you go into it. Um, Especially in the beginning when you're not known. You know, for me with my first journey... Um, there was a fair bit of negative sentiment um, across the adventure community. This guy's unknown. He's from Gold no, Coast. Nobody is from the Gold Coast. Nobody does their first Antarctic journey as a solo. He needs to spend more time training, which were probably all valid concerns, you know. But um, I think for those in our inner circle who knew me and knew how hard I'd worked and trained and, and uplinked to the best people in the world quietly, like Bourgeoisland, um, you know. Maddie McNair in in Canada and Lydia Brady in New Zealand, all these incredible adventurers in each each in their field that I sucked information out of that kept me alive. Yep. You know, our family were privy to that. The people outside the inner circle weren't, and they um, they just backed you up. Like, well, they back you up. So I think you need to be really careful what voices you let in. Mm. If you get a negative comment, which is absolutely standard behaviour yep. from someone who's not in your inner circle, you don't respect. Um, then you, you need to just forget it and make sure, though, that you listen to the voices of the people you do respect. So on this last journey, there were voices from people uh, that changed things, um, like Eric Phillips from Tasmania, who was very constructive and supportive, but um, you know had some great input. Um, Borjusland uh, from Norway, once again, an incredible yep. support. If those guys came to me and said, listen, what you're doing is suicide, I would respect it and listen to it. So I think you need to to look at the resume of the person that's critiquing you and and don't don't be pig-headed and not listen if they've got a resume that's to be respected. And I think particularly in Australian culture, there's this just this thing of the tall poppy syndrome where it's like, oh, someone's rising above us, we're going to try and shoot them down. And I think to all those people that have dreams and aspirations, be prepared for that. But also the people that are doing the criticizing, just remember that like a dream in its infancy is like, it's really fickle. So if someone has this amazing idea and comes to dad, it's okay to voice um, what you're worried about. Perhaps they don't have enough skills. Perhaps they don't um, actually understand what they're about to step into. But support is all we can offer, especially dad as an athlete. Um, I think it'd be pretty rare for you to shoot down a dream because at the end of the day, dad was in the exact same position and it was mm. only a matter of someone speaking in, uh, speaking life over his dreams and be like, no, you can do this, that he ultimately has kind yeah. of built this career out of this. And I'm sure it could have gone the other way where dad stuck his neck out and got shot down and he's like, well, they all think I can't do it. Um, and it's really interesting actually when you're coming like a month out from an expedition is generally when you'll start having the doubts and then you'll you'll start bumping into people they'll start planting little seeds of like oh you're taking that oh that's pretty heavy oh blah blah, blah. um and i think that's 
when you're most vulnerable to completely mm. ditch, ditching the dream. But Jeff, you're smart there because you uplinked. Now that comes back to tribe. Like mm. if you're sitting there, yeah. like in any anything in life, yeah. any day to day, and people are shutting you down around you, it's like yeah. I kind of see that as being around the wrong tribe or oh, the wrong sur- people. Yeah, surround yourself. So like being smart, like like Jeff did for that polar polar expedition, uplinking with the right people that are going to provide that support. Yeah, I think, I mean, the uplinking process is something we've always worked into our adventures in that you build the dream and then you work out who has who you're trying to beat or who's the most experienced person in the world and then you connect to them and stick to them like a limpet, suck all the information out. But the, <laughs> the other thing we forget is the critic is actually a super powerful tool as well mm. in that, um, and I go back to a bit of story time here, I'm, yes. I'm, it's before my last journey back in... Or 2013, and we're doing a fundraiser in Q1 for the McGrath Foundation. I'm talking on the podium, and and remembering at this point, I've got no polar pedigree, and I'm professing that I'm going to be the first to to cross as an Australian from coast to coast, and I'm going to do it the fastest way possible. And this guy who's in a kilt and had a bit to drink was obviously a bit of truth serum flowing through his veins as I step off the podium says oh can i look at your face because it's quite a dark room with a couple of downlights and i'm like why does he want to look at my face this is a bit weird anyway i, I kind of was taken aback and agreed um to let him look at my face and he pulls me into the downlight and just takes a long hard look at my face little nuggety angry looking man and uh says to me yep just as i thought you don't have what it takes to do what you've set out to do what? And uh, I've gone, oh, well, let me look at your face. So I pull him into the downlight and I look at his face, drink it in, kind of memorise his face. And I, I look at him and go, every time I feel like quitting, I'm going to remember your ugly face. <laughs> Have and you seen that guy since? No, uh, never, never. never. But dad, dad brings him up all the time. Men, uh, ki- men in the kilt. So he actually, the kilt. like, that yeah. sounds like such an asshole move, but... I, that would have helped you. It's oh, that. he helped me on both journeys. I I, I pulled him <laughs> out this journey this as guy, well. This guy doesn't realise he's he's fueling all our expeditions. Yeah. <laughs> it probably drags back to that exact same kind of what Dad was saying, that primal sense of when I was under the boat of just being like, no, this is not it. This is not how it ends. And this situation is not going to dictate what's going to happen in the future. So just really accessing something that um, perhaps we don't tap into a lot, which is just that that primal drive to like achieve a goal and that's I think that that's mongrel the, that we're talking mongrel. about yeah, yeah the mongrel is probably the best way of describing the it mo- we were talking uh, Lauren was on the crack and she was just screeching and getting mongrel with it and I think that's what I love for women with climbing is that their grace and elegance kind of trump strength and brute force but yeah. they still need that mongrel to get through and, and I think the mongrel element is what we're kind of instilling as well and don't take don't take your first failure as the indication of the mm. final result. Totally. Like, just get mongrel and push through. Yeah. Mm. I think climbing, well, that was my first, like, really, real exposure to it. And that's, you know, it's, you've got to be calculated. You've got to be yeah. thinking ahead. Yeah. You know what I mean? You've got to, you can't really have an e- ego on that. You've got to, it's... It strips back fear a lot. Yeah. To, it's... Because you've got to act. You're sitting yeah. there on that rock yeah. and your, your body's tensing up. Yeah. The fatigue's setting in. <laughs> your muscles are getting weak so quick. Yeah. And you're, trying to, and you're trying to work. Like there's so much going on at once. Totally, yeah. And I think 
my kind of climbing uh, genesis was a bit weird because like I started climbing and then after a few months I was climbing at Frog's Buttress where we just were and it's quite a traditional and hard man ethic and um, definitely I probably hadn't dealt with the kind of cal- I don't even know the potency of fear you feel when you're run out and really 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 scared um, so it's been a really crazy process trying to climb and trying when you're feeling scared and run out and you're perhaps in a dangerous position learning how to actually calm yourself down and think rationally and keep moving or do moves you're like okay cool i know i can down climb these and i've actually applied that to a lot of stuff in life just um if you're if you're in a space of fear you're pushing yourself and it, it would be more scary if i wasn't fearing in the sense that i knew that i would just i was just hanging to my lane i get like that in trees yeah I get like that that in trees. Uh, I think it was like a year ago I was climbing this tree. Yeah. And I went to take this limb off and my abseil rope wasn't long enough for the tree. I was just re-rigging it. Yeah. But I came down, I abseiled down to take this limb off and then I wasn't happy with where I was going to cut it. So I was like, I'll go down a little bit more. Yeah. And I went down a little bit more and I was like thinking, I was like, oh, it's still if I cut it here, I need to go a little bit lower. Yeah. And I go lower and the next thing I just had this intuition to stop. Yeah. And I looked down and my knot had, my stopper yeah, knot had come that's out. A, that's a huge... And I was yeah. like oh, wow. 30, 40 meters. I was high up this huge yeah. gum tree. And I had stopped like literally 200 mil mm. before, before totally. that. Um, and the yeah. thing was I'd gone too comfortable. Yeah. And it's like I always like, whenever I'm in a tree, I always remind myself. It's like, you You're know, right. I could, things can go wrong yeah. like severe, like severely so quickly mm-hmm. here. And I, like it just, every time I think that. It's like I take my time and I stop yeah. and I breathe and I'm still scared, but it's like I can come at it from a different yeah. angle. And yeah, sometimes you've just got to take your take your eye off the ball because if you're just chasing these goals and stuff, and it's coming back to the having a bit of not boredom but a bit of downtime, it stops you from getting into that what we call like crossing the line where you're doing these really dangerous things, but you're not giving the environment the respect it really deserves. Yeah, and that's probably linking back to that. It's a pretty, pretty hectic. Dude. <laughs> hey, we we have covered some deep topics here. Yeah, yeah. I know. Sorry, I'm <laughs> rambling. No, not at all, man. It's so on point. I, I love it. But I think what you know, everyone's gone through a pretty difficult year. Whether your industry or your work mm. has been infected or not, everybody's carrying a fair bit of tension. Uh, you know, watching the American election, even though it doesn't directly affect us. Um, potentially it could and um, you know there's tension through corona and world politics and I think managing fear managing anxiety and um, getting out into the wilderness is more and more important and my my sort of thing is if more people um, understand how beneficial adventure in any shape or form is yeah uh, more people will respect the environment and and really fight for it. You know, yeah. I I just think if if we fought the same way we fought for the whales, uh, for you know forest and trees and you know the backburning and and palm oil plantations in Borneo, the Amazon Delta, all of these sensitive areas, then you know where Simon and myself and and Kid have been adventuring um, in the last decade, we see global warming more than anybody um so anyone pretending that it's not happening has got you know marbles in their head um but you know adventuring and having a love for the planet will will help us turn it do you reckon we should leave on that that was a great little i love that yeah that's good 
What, what would you like to leave with, Kit? I don't know. I think... Oh, I don't know. What would you say to other 19-year-olds? Hmm. It's, it's funny. <laughs> I don't hang with other 19-year-olds. Um, I was just thinking, like, yeah. with, with fear, I was just thinking... A guy sent me a message from the yacht stories I've been putting out. Mm. Two people, actually, yep. in the last week have bought, yeah, yeah. bought yachts. And I was just thinking just then, like, as you are saying that, Jeff, it's like, what if they didn't do that? And that's that's what they wanted yep. to do. It was their dream. Yeah, it might, totally. might have taken that story to motivate them to, to do that. Mm. But it's like, imagine if they didn't. Yeah. Their life hasn't changed. It's the same. But they had exactly. this dream. Yeah. The dream would have still been there. But it's like something like these two, both and two separate people yep. are making their dreams come true this week. Yeah, and you know what I mean? Kinda, they took that step. Kind of coming back to the whole fear thing. It's like fear is relative. Danger is relative. Um what I find really scary, you might not find scary and vice versa. It's um, what I find more scary would be not pursuing my dreams and not um, trying to have a life of um, impact and not trying to tell stories and kind of um, help people. I find that way more scary than um, not being successful and not having enough money and stuff like that. And obviously I'll probably look, I might look back at this and be like, Oh, a bit of money would have helped. But yeah, um, yeah it's one of those things. It's like all it takes is a step and like those guys it's a it's a huge step just to um just say your dream to prophesy i'm going to do this um and i think that's a huge step for heaps of people whether your goal is in business or in adventure to actually just say it out loud so it's there and it's hanging with you and then surround yourself like dad was saying surround yourself with people that support you don't surround yourself with the people that you're just waiting till you hear the right answer of, yeah yeah you can do that but surround yourself with the people that are going to be rational that are going to drag you back and I'm, I'm sure our family unit is kind of a microcosm of that we all support each other but we're also very real with each other um, there's been adventures where we're like dad you're not training enough well, look um, at the people in this car yeah <laughs> <laughs> like you got all just huge adventures Simon's behind yeah. the wheel driving us right now and he yeah. held that record with Jeff crossing crossing Greenland <laughs> totally it's but kind of ridiculous yeah no yeah and yeah that draws back to it we're just uh it's that's probably the more abnormal bit is and it's sad to say not so much our adventure like the adventures we do is is cool but what i find really special is just the way we support each other whether it's in business or in life or an adventure um i think there's a lot to be said about putting aside your ego and putting aside what you think someone's capable of and just supporting them and being real with them and being intentional in kind of stirring a relationship where adventure can brew well that's just love isn't it yeah totally <laughs> that's uh, probably just, what it all boil, it's, boils it's down to unconditional love. love this is love this is love <laughs> yeah alright Jeff so totally. tonight we're off to Iceman at Event Cinemas in Robina which is your your film that's premiering yeah, so um, cool and then so Where's it going to be after this premiere? Well, I think tonight? at the moment it's on Curiosity Channel in the US. Curiosity think, Stream? Um, yeah, Curiosity Stream, but I'm not sure we can get that in Oz. So what I'll do is as soon as we get, you know, a link for Amazon or Netflix or wherever it's going to be. We'll drop it. Drop I'll, it down below. Or we'll drop it yeah. um, with you and also on Dr. Jeff Wilson, uh, my Insta handle will have it so um, I mean the real the drive for me getting this film seen by Aussies is just to really reaffirm the whole adventure is good for you message and especially in a time where it's been a pretty pretty tough year you know it's kind of a positive um, incredible Australian achievement 
um, during a time when you know it shouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I, I can't wait for tonight. Actually, I'm yeah, wearing a collared feel... shirt. Oh wow! <laughs> a collared shirt. Fancy. <laughs> so the most smart casual. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Porsche is coming. Yeah, here we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to do a Porsche commercial. <laughs> oh man, and and Kit, so you you and you've also got um, a little YouTube series going on right now. Yeah, yeah. So I just I... come off the back of kind of a pretty cool. Um, uh, adventure with some friends just road tripping around New South Wales kind of trying to make the most of this weird disfigured uh, year that is 2020 um, we kind of all had plans to go overseas and this pandemic kind of forced us to look inwards and that's kind of the premise of the whole series is just looking uh, inwards to the frontiers we have in our own country and exploring your local so what's it called uh, southbound southbound on YouTube yeah, if, yeah. You, if you just write in southbound on, on YouTube you it'll come straight up southbound Kit Wilson should be there or if you hop on my socials yeah, yeah. it's actually and you did such a good job I was, <laughs> I was away at work watching your episodes Probably and ma- like getting so much making you jealous FOMO. yeah yeah, yeah. so much fun mate <laughs> that's yeah. awesome no yeah I appreciate uh, it alright guys let's get out of here now thanks Simon for driving totally. yeah thanks Simon yeah, <laughs> shout out Simon driver of the year <laughs> uh, thanks guys I have prizes for you guys. Diaries of the Wild Ones t-shirts and O'Penal knives up for grabs. Last week winner was Zane over in Colorado. Thanks, Zane. You shared Diaries of the Wild Ones in the most hilarious way possible. You used it as a conversational starter to ask a girl out definitely deserves a t-shirt so if you like this episode please feel free to share it on social media rate it on apple Podcasts, and subscribe and i'll see that and i'll choose a random winner every week just so i can give back to the listeners and get a bit of marketing for me because i'm terrible at that stuff you know and thank you guys for being amazing i'll see you next time I do it like a double.